Hey everybody, this is James Intracasso letting you know that we got some awesome audio from Wade Rocket. It is all of the Pelgrane Press panels from Gen Con, so check it out. We've got some good stuff going. This is a beginning that we are putting on top of all of them. Thank you so much to Wade and the people at Pelgrane for giving us this audio. All right, without further ado, here is the panel. <laughs> all right, welcome <laughs> Power of to the 13th Age Game Master Roundtable and Gen Con 2016. It is Friday, and we are all excited, but a little more tired than we were yesterday, the first day of Gen Con. Uh, so we have a stellar group here, uh, both both behind the, the table and on the other side of the table. Uh, for those of you uh, listening at home, uh, we have four folks in the audience. <laughs> But these these four people are going to come out of this panel as the best 13th Age Game Masters in history because they will have knowledge that others do not, except you're listening to this, so you'll have it too. Uh, so uh, perhaps let's start to my right with introductions. Hello, my name is Rob Hainso. Um, I usually forget to introduce myself at the start of panels, but today I'm somehow managing. And uh, Jonathan and I designed 13th Age and uh, a few other games over the, the course of the years. And uh, I now work as a line developer on it. Uh, I'm Wade Rocket. Uh, I have been running 13th Age uh, since at least the second playtest draft, uh, maybe the tail end of the first. And uh, I am also the uh, writer of several 13th Age products, but also most recently the 13th Age GM screen and resource book, uh, which, is, which is why I'm sitting here. And I'm Aaron Rodobush, probably best known to a lot of people as Wolf Samurai Online. Uh, I run the online play uh, part of Fireable and 13th Age, and I've also written uh, several organized play adventures, as well as having a Patreon where I do 13th Age stuff. Where can people find that Patreon? It is at patreon.com slash wolf samurai. Excellent. Wolf Samurai, I think you have the strongest view of the strongest tag. Yeah, I, I have I have branding. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> CNN's Wolf Samurai. Ooh, God no. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, Rob, do you want to take the lead on this or uh, shall I start peppering people uh, with questions? Um, start and then I'll pick up from you. Okay. When you, and we'll do a hand signal. Like when you when you tap your shoulder like that, I'll, I'll go like this. Oh dear. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, so, show of hands, how many people here have run Thirteenth Age? Okay, Literally half the room. Fifty percent. <laughs> a fantastic percentage. The people have. How many have played Thirteenth Age? Okay. Three quarters of the room. Three quarters of the room. One person has neither GM'd nor played 13th Age. Who here has not heard of 13th Age before this moment? Oh, wow. 25% of the audience has not heard of 13th Age at all. Well, perhaps let's start um, by saying that 13th Age is a D20 rolling fantasy role-playing game by uh, Rob Hainso and Jonathan Tweet, the lead designers of 4th and 3rd edition D&D, respectively. Uh, given complete creative control by Pelgrane Press to make whatever game they wanted to make, uh, they decided to make the game they most wanted to run for their friends on Wednesday night. And so they basically took all the parts of, of D20 rolling fantasy RPG history that they thought were cool and fun 
and left out anything they didn't think was cool and fun and made a very creative kind of uh, faster moving uh, game that uh, millions of people around the world enjoy today. I may be exaggerating a little bit with that last part. Hundreds. Wade failed to mention that he also does PR for us. I do also do PR, yes. (laughs) (laughs) At least hundreds of people. At least least 50 people around the world (laughs) enjoy it today. At least two different languages. And at least, yes, it's in Korean and and German. I I have the Korean map on my wall now, and it feels like that is a magical map. Yeah. Korean, German, French. It looks so interesting. I think French, yes. Mm -hmm. French, Spanish. Um, Brazilian. Right, Portuguese, yeah. Portuguese, I'm sorry. Yeah, it's in Brazil. Uh, and I'm sure... Oh! I think Russian is underway. Oh, yeah, that's um, right. And, uh, yeah, cool. so that's a few. Excellent. There's probably at least three of them are... Three <laughs> at least three people in this room! <laughs> <laughs> right. I the copies of at least one or two books. <laughs> um, so, excellent. Um, what uh, What brought you... To this, uh, to this panel, was there something in particular? Was there a question you were bringing, or an issue? You were, uh, yes. What or who brought you to okay, this panel? Good. I'm going to play this one for last because that's where we're going. Okay, so, all right, good. Um, because there's so few people here, we can totally tailor this to be talking about what you want to, yeah, exactly. you want to talk about and asking questions. If you if you decide you don't, if we end up lacking questions, we'll go ahead and start, you know, rolling the entertainment. Uh, so, you know, that's an option also. Right. Um, but if, so. I feel bad for not coming with no, questions. No, 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 no. Usually you're not expected to at a panel. We're expected to be prepared with things for you, right? You know, so it's cool. Yeah, um, because this is 13th age, we're totally not. We're improving it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so. Um, if there are th- specific issues you have about GMing that you want to address and things you would love us to talk about, you know, this is, this is certainly a wonderful chance. Um, you showed up to the GM huddle yesterday, which was wonderful, Samuel, and the GM huddle was you and me. Yeah, that's right. Um, and everybody else was busy running games at that time, which is a, you know, a positive, yeah. a positive thing. I should, I'll, I'll go visit them uh, this next time. Um, and I noticed, Michael, I know you said you were interested in writing um, Adventures, possibly. That'd be awesome. Yeah, and mm-hmm. that's another. That is certainly connected to GMing, um, and so we can go ahead and talk a little bit about that as well, um, if you like. Um, and I, I actually uh, had a conversation with uh, someone who was thinking about being a GM at the booth right before I came here, which was which was a pretty interesting perspective that she brought. Okay. Which I could, yeah. Uh, which I will talk about now. So yeah. Um, <laughs> so she was uh, browsing through the Thirteenth Age books, and uh, as is my want, I said, "Let me know if." If you have any questions or if there's anything I can help with. And after a while, she said that she was not sure. She was really nervous about being a 13th age GM because she was, uh, A, afraid that she wouldn't be able to find any players, which is a concern for every GM. Um, But also, she was afraid that she would do it wrong. And which is also very common and very understandable. Digging a little deeper, uh, she was concerned that she would not be able to accurately capture uh, the, the setting and its icons, that she would not be able to, to do the setting and its icons right, which I thought was really interesting. So she had read the books. She had played 30 oh, Sage. played. Okay, yeah. so her, her GM might not have, like, carried... Yeah, who knows? Well, yeah. Who knows what the what the GM gave? Hmm. Rob, how do you how do you do it right? 
<laughs> What's the right way to play to, to run Thirteenth Age? Aaron, I'm going to let you take this one first. The, the right way to play Thirteenth Age is whatever way is fun. Um, but beyond the platitudes, is is the right way to do it is to see what your players expect out of it, and then go from there. Because uh, in my experience, not all players necessarily are interested in the kind of collaborative setting building that that Dragon that uh, the Dragon Empire mm-hmm. provides. They just want to go. I just want to play. I don't want to have to make stuff up. I just want to do stuff. And in that case, you have to be ready to to adjust for that and not expect that same kind of um, narrative control out of it. And the, the icons are the same way. Um, most of the groups I've played with, they've kind of wanted the icons really in the background. Hmm. And so whenever I've tried to bring them to the foreground and make them more a, a, a much more integral part of the, the different sessions... They, they've kind of pushed back on it. They're, they're not interested in that part of it so much. So uh, that's led me to what I usually do for like icons now, which is use them on a much more higher level in terms of the, these are the icons you've chosen. So these are the icons I'm going to put. I'm going to sprinkle in through the entire campaign, not necessarily this session or the next session. Mm-hmm. And if you're using your icon relationships, then I'm going to more immediately put them. If you have a six and you say, I want to use this, then I'm going to bring that icon immediately into play. But until you do that sort of thing, I'm going to keep them, uh, not necessarily in the background, but I'm going to keep them on a higher level of the campaign than I do, um, than, than other GMs do. So I know I, I definitely GM different than you do in that respect, uh, as well as probably you, Wade. But that's the way that I find my players uh, like to do it, both in terms of demos and my regular games. So that's kind of how I've adjusted my DMing style to suit. And that's kind of what I recommend that, that any new GM do as well. Since icons um, are so integral, it, it, it can lead to a lot of people feeling that you have to use them in specifically the way that it's listed there, when in reality, as is mentioned the other way in the book, you need to make, the, make it your own, mm. and that's one way of doing it. And that's what you should do as a GM regardless, whether it's this game or whatever. Make the game your own make the game fit with what your players expect. And that way, everybody at the table is going to have a lot more fun than if you try to run it the quote-unquote right way. Can I, can I just ask, um, before we, we move on, could, uh, do you have an example of a way that you use the icons that the players push back against? Like, how, what, what did they not like? What they, don't, what they didn't like doing, uh, and what they still don't to some extent, is they don't like having the icons... Uh, determine things on a session to session or even kind of like a two or three session arc basis. They like having them kind of in the background feeding into the story. Um, so, like, so like, did the Archmage actually like appear in an adventure and say, I, I destroy the No, but the wall what I like tried or... to pull like the agents of the icons and have them directly interact with the players. Okay. They, they, they push back on that and they're like, we, we're not, this, this feels kind of artificial to us. Okay. We don't really want these big NPCs to, uh, it's so directly involved in what we're doing. Um, and, and that's where I was like, all right, all right, I'll put, pull it back some and see, if that works better for you, and, and in the end, that's that's what they wanted more. Is they wanted they, they don't mind it in the background. They they don't mind icons having the influence, but they don't want them as upfront. Okay. So they want it more as a faction than a specific individual. Yes, so that, that's that's part of it as well. And I tend to run the icons, even the icons in, in Dragnet uh, Dragon Empire. I tend to run them more as a faction than an individual anyway, because. Mm-hmm. 
uh, I personally don't feel that you should be directly interacting with an icon until you get higher in level anyway. So up to that point, you're dealing with their agents, their organizations, that sort of thing anyway. So in, for me, that wasn't a big stretch. Um, but yeah, they, that was definitely one of the things that they didn't really have an interest in is they didn't want the, here's the Archmage and he's directly involved in what we're doing because it, uh, it, it has a GM NPC feeling to them. They're like, we don't want this big NPC overshadowing us, directing us, and all this sort of thing. And even though I wasn't really trying to do that, they had that feeling to them <clears throat> um, because of other games that they play and other settings that they had where where the big NPCs are such a focus. It's the Elminster the problem. Uh, the Elminster mm-hmm. problem, yes, yeah. exactly. There's a there's a big fan, uh, fabulous wizard who's the sort of main protagonist of a lot of novels in the Forgotten Realms by Ed Greenwood, sort of his 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 archetypal character and and he's sometimes in the world so powerful that he has that Superman problem where you're wondering, Superman, why don't you take care of frickin' everything? You know? Yeah. But it's more fun in a, in a role playing game. The important thing is to give the agency to the player characters, and so for the for the new GM, I mean, one there's two ways to start a campaign, or let's just say there's two. One way is to go ahead and like have an idea of what you want to accomplish with a storyline involving the icons, and that's like a campaign where Jonathan decided that that once he found out, he asked people who they wanted to have icon relationships with and find out first, then. He said, okay, it looks like a lot of people are interested in the Dwarf King. A lot of people are sort of against the Diabolist. The Diabolist has just stolen the Dwarf queen, dwarf King's wife. She's gone, and now the Dwarf King has turned into the Crusader. <laughs> you know, and so that's going to happen. Like, and now we're doing a campaign. And then the rest of... But he, he did that based on what the player characters were interested. Mm-hmm. And it was his idea of a story he wanted to tell. We, none of us had that idea. Mm-hmm. And the other way that's much easier for a, a new GM is simply to have as much fun as possible in character creation. Make up... Fan, you know, help people make one unique things that make them feel good. You know, it's like, you know, you know realize that this is your chance... Think of yourself as both a starting hero and what you might be like. You know, you, you know, this is a this is your one unique thing, and it might blossom and turn into the kind of story that a movie gets made about. You know, and uh, once everyone in the group has done that and also made up the backgrounds, different stories will have started to be told, and then the game master can kind of be like, you don't have to make any big pronouncements about the icons at all. You just start using the ideas the player characters gave you. And it's that there's a classic thing about communication, and I can't remember the actual things, but, you know, when somebody's talking to you and you repeat back to them what they said to you, except in a slightly different words, they were like, oh, yeah, that's totally it. That's great. You know, I love your idea, you know, know, and, and and really that's what can happen as a GM in 13th Age. So the answer, when you said anything's right, and it, and you said it can be done by the players, 13th Age, because it's a half-designed world, you know, that new GM, the hope, hopefully when she reads the book fully or, you know, she'll know, oh, I get to, like, do it any way I want and any way the players want, mm-hmm. you know. And so um, we tried to make the icons vague enough that it would be perfectly acceptable to alter them. And I can see we said a few things that were a little more solid, but really every campaign is about one of the player characters saying, no, the emperor is not 
a drunken, un, you know, untested guy. You know, actually, you know, the emperor is a former soldier who's a, you know, a crack veteran of like dragon wars, and he's just injured and limping, and now is looking for an heir. And then th- that could be like part of the background story, and then and then that's what your campaign is about, mm-hmm. and that that's sort of a, a an easier way for new GMs to sort of have people tell them what things are about. Yep. Um, in, in my campaign, one of the uh, one of the players took the three as a relationship, and she didn't read the full entry for the three in the book. She just read the very short, oh, cool. a couple yeah. sentences. So she didn't get at all that they were supposed to be evil. That's awesome. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so they ended up being sort of conniving, ruthless, uh, pitiless. Uh, but that's just because they're dragons. So, yeah, like they're actually you know pretty okay. And another uh, player character. Um, took the emperor and because of things that he said in his background um the emperor turned out to be a much more compromised and conflicted yeah. sort of person you know he, the emperor is trying to make the best of a bad empire that he inherited right um and so has has had to make some uh, some sacrifices along the way so yeah and uh, I didn't make any of that up. My only rule was the orc lord is always going to be a bad guy. Okay. I don't want any kind of Poor, misunderstood orc lord. Mm. He's just bad, and aside from that, you know, bring whatever. And and, and that could be a, a, a good way too for a, a GM to go into things as well is to not only take the ideas that the players have done, but to kind of some players will find that the fact that they can make up anything to be kind of overwhelming. Yes. Um, so if you put even just a couple of restrictions on them. They'll start thinking a little bit between those restrictions, and they'll have a much easier time of coming up with different things. So, like in this case, Wade said the Oracle is always a bad guy. It's a frame of reference that you can that you can look at all the other icons around. So you could say, well, if the Oracle is always a bad guy, does that mean that the Dwarf King is always a good guy? And you can start to look at the icons in a different way, and you can go, maybe, maybe the Dwarf King really isn't, but in this case, it's an enemy of my enemy is my friend situation. So once you put a frame of reference or, or a constriction on player uh, in some way, especially if they are feeling overwhelmed with all the options and available things that they can make up, um, it can help ground uh, a player or a GM for that matter. So, Wade, Aaron, tell me, have we, tell me if we've said what I'm about to say in a published product. I think we might have put it in the GM book, and I'm not positive. Mm -hmm. Jonathan feels that 13 icons is the right number for, I think it it was in a seven-icon campaign, perhaps. Is the right, 13 icons is the, the right number for creating a world and covering the archetypes of fantasy so that people have this broad palette to work with. On the other hand, Jonathan thinks that 13 icons involved in a single cam- single campaign is a few too many. And he thinks that seven or six is the right number. Yeah. Uh, maybe five, maybe four. <laughs> so that one of the things that can happen is that at the start of a campaign, you know, I would tell a, 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 the new game master, which four icons or five icons do you like most? You know, do you... Go ahead and tell your player characters, these are the central ones for this campaign. Choose most of your relationships from these. Anybody, any relationship you choose outside of this is a real weirdo, and we'll have to talk about it, you mm-hmm. know, because I want the, the, the story to be focused here. And then, and then that's just what you said. It gives them the, the, the limitations then mm-hmm. that allow creativity to come out a little bit. That's what Jonathan feels. I don't tend to do that. Jonathan does uh, when he's running. That makes one of the one of the frustrations that I often hear uh, about the 
about icon relationships from GMs on forums and other social media um, is just that there are too many of them involved and their players tend to roll really well. And so, yeah, I mean, I lucked out because my players kind of kept it to a nice mm-hmm. manageable number, but if all three, or all 13 or even if 10 all, were involved, it would be kind of a mess. If all mm-hmm. 13 icons are potentially showing up every single session uh, multiple times, um, I believe, uh, let's just face it, I don't think we designed our system quite correctly for that. People ask different questions about how do you use icon relationships in a you know, an easy way. And in a, in a situation like that, you're going to want to, the GM might be, you know, you might be better advised to come up with a couple, here's a couple easy things a player can do with a relationship. And if I'm not figuring out story ways for you to handle it, use one of those, please, yeah. you know, because there's, there's too much going on here to handle it. Um, Glorantha, um, the new 13th age of Glorantha, uh, supplement world book campaign, uh, you know, setting for, uh, for 13th Age, uh, which we kick-started and it's going to be published by Chaosium, has a different system than icon relationships. Mm-hmm. And it's the the runes in Glorantha are all powerful. So there's runes of death, air, there's elemental runes and moon and such. And every player character has probably relationships with three runes. And at the beginning of every day, there's a 50% chance they're going to be attuned to one of those runes. And then a 50% chance it'll be a random rune. And the onus on figuring out, on narrating something about the power of that rune having something to do with the the adventures that day is entirely on the player. Mm -hmm. You'll have an air rune, and I as Game Master will want to know that because I'm going to want to be able to suggest to you later when you're in deep doo-doo that (laughs) maybe this is a great time for you to to, to narrate an air rune. Design around that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But I'm not going to... I, it's not it's not on the game master to figure it out, and it makes, you know, as an example of a just a simplifying factor, I suspect that one of the the um, you know the things when I go ahead and publish an article about adapting pieces of the Glorantha game to the Dragon Empire, it's going to be if you're if you're struggling with how to use the I, the icons and their roles on a regular basis, here's a slim, simpler method that in which you know because in our current game you could. I rolled the dice. I didn't get any icon relationships at all today, you know, and that was something we were comfortable with. But the other person's got three, you mm-hmm. know, for some reason. And it's sort of like it was when we did Glorantha, we just realized, you know, the most interesting thing is that everybody does have at least one. <laughs> it's, it's more interesting when something happens it's more than when nothing happens. Yes, yes. And it's and, and, and we don't and special, special things happening in the game can mean that you get another one. Mm. And um so, and the, and the narrative storytelling component also is a little different because in Thirteenth Age, there's an implication you can use it during combat. You can, you know, it's, there's all kinds of ways, and it's more narrowly it's more narrowly defined as a big as a as a real change in the story um, in, in Glorantha. Um, but so anyway, I'm going to suggest that as a, it might be simpler, you know, for new GMs, frankly. Okay. So, uh, but it has to be sort of tailored properly, and I haven't done that. Yeah, in making limiting the, the the icons can also be not just for a new GM, but especially if they're dealing with players who are also new to the system, yeah. um, can also help in that respect. Um, when I started a, a game a couple of months ago, I 
basically recommended a, a, a I gave them one icon that I'm like, I would really like you to have an icon relationship with this. Yeah. And then after that, I was like, and because we're doing with this, you may want these other ones. And I mean, I said, you can go outside that if you want, but because I gave them suggestions to start, they had an easier time of kind of picking and, and deciding. Yeah. And so they were able to go and look straight at that icon instead of having to flip through all 13 mm -hmm. and go, which ones of these sounds interesting. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's good for a, a new GM in that respect because it'll help you uh, teach your players as well. And I think in a certain sense to, to summarize this is my relationship with the icon, I'm really glad to have the icons in the game. I believe that they serve their purpose completely, which is to give new player characters a stake and a relationship to the most important factors in the world. Uh, and that, along the one unique thing, makes new characters just feel more vibrant and, and real and connected to what's going on, and it gives the Game Master so many hooks. On the other hand, I'm not positive that the icon relationship mechanics work, you know, the percentage of the audience that's running the game and having fun with it, that they work fully well for, is, is clearly a smaller percentage of the number of game masters. And so, therefore, if people are, you know, think, running it and going, well, I don't know if I like the way the icon mechanics work, okay, <laughs> feel free to simplify it. You know, mm -hmm. it doesn't, we, you know, there's a lot of mechanics that I totally am happy with in 13th Age, mm -hmm. but I suspect that the icon mechanics, you know, I could have gone ahead and written, we could have gone ahead and done another five versions of them, and it would be just as useful or more useful if we had. Boy, if only there were a product that had more versions of how the icon relationship like the mechanics work. Like the GM resource screen? The GM resource book. Yeah, that has that, has that in it there. It does. Written by me and Cal Moore. Yeah. It does. Yeah. And, um, uh, and then why don't you tell us what one of those is? Uh, well, I... I <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> no, 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 that no, was no, so good. cruel of me. That was so cruel of me. I knew there were cruel but funny is always is always welcome. Um, uh, so yeah, it's, it's just here. I can go. I can find the book right now. If, if you wish, uh, but there in in that book there are several different um, ways that you can handle uh, icon benefits. Yeah. Um, so. If you get, I mean, if you roll on an icon, the the icons, of course, for the 25% of the audience who's not familiar with 13th Age are the 13 most powerful beings in the world, the Archmage, the Lich King, the Dwarf King, or uh, the Orc Lord, um, kind of these, these, these fantasy archetypes, and the characters are connected to them in a way that uh, acts as a resource during play. Like, you can draw on your relationship with the Dwarf King to do stuff in the game and overcome obstacles. Um... And so uh, on a five, you get a benefit with a complication. On a six, you just get a pure benefit. And there are the, – the resource book talks about a variety of ways that you can kind of handle that, uh, that benefits economy. Um, my favorite of which, the one that I use in my campaign after much trying different sorts of approaches, is to give them over entirely to the players. I could use them as inspiration for what's going to happen in the adventure, but I prefer to actually hand out physical tokens and say, okay, you have a, you know, you got a six with the elf queen. All right, here, here is that thing. Here is a token, and you have that banked in front of you. And if you come up against something, let's say that you find yourself surrounded by uh, undead elves in the depths of this haunted forest, and uh, they want to kill you because you touch the sacred shin bone of the stag god. Um, 
then suddenly uh, my player Jim stands up and says, I am a representative of the Elf Queen. I come from the Court of Stars, and in her name, I command you to let us pass safely and plays that token. It's like, that is a great use of a benefit. Yes. And it, it further reinforces that this character, you know, where this character is from and what they're all about and the kind of and the kinds of uh, respect they wield and the obligations that they have as well. Because if that were a complication, it's like, okay, by calling on the name of the Elf Queen in this manner, mm. now maybe you have a responsibility of some sort. It's like, oh, hey, oh, you're an ambassador to the Elf Queen. Great. <laughs> there's, this, there's this ogre <laughs> that we can really use some help with. So yeah. I think... So, so that's one, but then there's other, like maybe I could use them, maybe I could have made that decision, or maybe we could, uh, maybe I handle benefits with complications, and you handle pure benefits. You know, there's a lot of ways that you can do that. I think that the, your, the things you've been doing influenced what we did in Varanta, um, to some extent, and, and I think there's one thing that didn't show up in your, in your, in the, what you wrote, but does show up in Glorantha that I think actually helps what you do. Oh. That I want that I want to mention. The I believe now that that I even though the rules are all written for a five or a six, yes, know, and fives are this and sixes are that. The way I'm and I haven't been running a Dragon Empire game lately. I'm going to start a new one now because um, I've been running a Veronica game. But I'm going to run a Dragon Empire, and the way I think I'm going to handle it is. I'm going to use the Veronthan system, which is you don't know if there's going to be a complication until after you use the benefit. So a five or a six is yeah. going to be, congratulations, there's a benefit. Freaking great. It is definitely a benefit. Completely a benefit. Congratulations. Use it. It's big. Wonderful. Huzzah for you. D20 roll. A one through five, there's a complication. Uh-huh. And look at my smile. Now, so the thing is, it's like, so 75% of the time, no complication. Of the time, but everybody around the table, when you rake that roll, everybody's looking because mm-hmm. on a one through five, then all the interesting things start to happen. And if the great part is at my table right now with the Glorantha game, you know, I, the players sometimes will be suggesting a complication, you know, and, and once you've told the glorious story of the benefit, it's so fun to be like, and is that it? Or, you know, or, and the story continues, you know, and so I, I find However. That, yeah, however. And I think the, the fact that right now 13th Age l- lets you know, oh, there's going to be a complication, that's, that's not as good. No, I, I agree, because I tend to do things similar to, to how Wade does. Mm-hmm. Um, I also have a house rule for, like, a mechanical benefit to it, but... But what ends up happening is that players are really reluctant to use a five oh, not, yeah. because they know that there's going to be something yep. that comes back and bites them. And as such, they only really use the sixes, and the fives just kind of sit there and and don't get as much benefit um, because I, I find that a lot of players are very risk-adverse, which is kind of funny. It's really funny. Um, I, I can totally hear it. You play with far more risk-adverse people than I do, and I'm, every time I hear it, I'm like, okay, this is really interesting. Yeah, yeah. I, 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 yeah my yeah. players are very risk-adverse. They don't like to use... They don't like to do things where the, they, they're putting themselves in danger, whether they're taking... Whether it's a narrative sense or uh, taking damage they're or They're just not going to really like the... the 
Zorax or any Berserker or the Hellmother. No, probably not. Though you never know. But but either way, they're very risk-adverse. So having something where it's unknown until after the fact is definitely something that Mm. that I would pull immediately into my game. And in fact, I probably will starting now. Mm. Um, Because, yeah, I find that players... At least in my experience, if if they're in a longer campaign, they they don't want to take any risks because they've gotten attached to their character, which is great. Yeah. But at, at the same time, an overabundance of caution is not very interesting to anybody because nothing happens. Um, so yeah, that's I, I definitely agree on that respect. That making the the knowledge of whether it's good or bad after or, or whether there's a consequence or not afterward is definitely a very good change. Mm-hmm. So, are you guys done? Because I do have a question. Yeah, oh, please, no. Um, So, for the 25% of the room who's not so familiar, uh, would you you explain, one, what is a one unique thing? Ah. And two, from a GM perspective, uh, how do you, what's your kind of advice for dealing with the privileges and responsibilities that certain one unique things may bring? Oh. Mm. Well, I have a blast with that, so... um, if somebody else wants to say what a one unique thing is, Aaron, go yeah, ahead, go sure. for it. I'll t- I'll do the so response. So every character in Thirteenth Age has a one unique thing. There is something about that character, whether it be about their physicality, their mentality, their uh, talents, something in their history that makes them completely unique. There is nobody else in the setting that is exactly like them in that respect. Um, and you can go very kind of basic with it, like. Uh, um, or you can go uh, much more exotic. Some of the ones that, that um, I've either seen or read about, um, one in a demo game I ran last year, I had one where the character wasn't the, the meat body moving around, but it was actually the sword that the, the, the character was had with him. But the, he, he had the meat bodies because he needed to move around. He wanted to go do stuff. Um, another one that... that and so then if the meat body... This is a very interesting character because what that's saying is a meat body is slain. There could be a you know there could be a let's call it new a new wielder. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. The, the, the character was the sword. Yes, the character yeah. was the sword, but that didn't affect the stats. No, no, didn't affect the stats at all. And it affected it, the dialogue. Yes, <laughs> the dialogue got very interesting at times. Um, and if it had been a longer campaign, I would have really wanted like, to, to to delve deeper into that and say, "All right, well, why why do you need this this body to move around? How can, how do you take damage by your your body getting hurt, and so on and so forth?" And uh, you can go all over the place. The the thing with the one unique things that we try to recommend not doing is having like a mechanical effect to it. Um, but beyond that, your one unique thing is as unique as you want to make it. As you know, I mean, you've read Harry Potter or seen the movies. Uh, Harry's one unique thing: I am the boy who lived. Mm-hmm. I'm the only person to have survived uh, mm-hmm. Voldemort's death curse. Now, that doesn't give him special power necessarily. I mean, it, it does. It does. Con- in, as the campaign continues, it connects him to his enemy it's, in it's, a way that was unexpected. But it's, but it's not like yeah, it's a narrative, it's a narrative thing. Truth. Yeah. Um, in the comic uh, series Rat Queens, there's a character uh, named Orc Dave, and whenever he heals somebody, uh, bluebirds appear in his beard. Mm-hmm. It's like that's his one unique thing. Yeah, he, and I think actually the uh, the writer for that is uh, playing. He is indeed. He is playing some Thirteenth Age. Yeah. Oh, I didn't and, know he's been playing Thirteenth Age. Uh, he's involved with a couple um, uh, the video 
Eric Fell, mm-hmm. who does uh, the, that Critical Hits comedy show. Um, yeah, and a webcomic. Anyway, they're doing stuff together. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, Bluebird Dave. So the answer, so as a first-level character, sometimes people will make up things that are, that sound like a really epic destiny. Most of the time, you don't want to have that epic destiny be fully active yet, but you want the implications of what it sounds like it could be to have started. Um, I, you know, when I had somebody, uh, uh, let's see, I am the only human, I'm the, the only child ever born from a zombie mother was like uh, one in our game. And Jonathan was the game master originally. And, you know, at first that didn't mean anything, but then a little while later, the character, there were prophecies about a child born of a zombie mother, the things that would start happening and, and then people started coming to them for healing. And it turned out the character, you know, so Jonathan made that player character into a figure of prophecy whose powers grew and grew, but became a huge problem because whenever we showed up in an urban era area, everybody came to see the promised one. <laughs> so, you know, so as a, as a thing of uh, saying, what do you do with the privileges and responsibilities? I... If I'm going to go, sometimes I just want to start things off by making a character. Yeah, it sounds like you're one of the things really, really important, and I'm going to make your character a little more powerful. Because I'm playing with the same group of players who know me, they usually sort of fear that. <laughs> because they, they know I'm famous for like once having given people treasure and <laughs> having them roll for it. And I had sort of lost track of the fact that I was supposed to be giving them treasure. And so then when Jonathan made a really sort of low roll, I suggested that the body he was looting and had a coiled thing in there that had bitten him and he took damage. So now, you know, I like, you know, it's time for treasure. No, no, no <laughs> treasure, no treasure. But, but a game master who doesn't have a jaded group uh, can go ahead and, you know, if you give somebody... The way I see it, if you give somebody something powerful, make it so it doesn't make them hog attention. At the, make it so that the rest of the group is happy to have them along. And um, the icon relationship mechanics give you, for instance, a trigger. Like the game's full of triggers. I roll d20. Mm-hmm. 16 plus, woohoo! Ability rocked! Well, so. You know, if the player has three points of relationship and one of them is with the elf queen, and when a complication occurs with the elf queen, you know that every complication this character has with the elf queen, because of their one unique thing, you know, their, you know, whenever and boy, I'm not using good examples. I need an example. If if there's some magical power they have that's connected to the power of the elf queen, but a complication is really complicated, mm-hmm. kind of, you know, then that's a balancing act, and you don't know when it's going to happen. And in that, and and I'm giving that example because you as game master, I didn't do this. To, you didn't do it to them. The dice did, <laughs> you know. And so that's oh, one unique thing in um, in my campaign, um, which I've made a lot of. Like like one of the characters has a um, has the one unique thing. I can talk to dogs and they love me. 
That has not come up often, um, <laughs> except for one time when he talked to a dog. Um, so you just don't put dogs in every adventure? I don't put dogs in every adventure. I, I could, but it just doesn't really grab me. He However, have a dog? The person... Wait. Uh, animal companion you wolf. killed his dog? Okay. I didn't kill his... I didn't kill his dog. <laughs> Look, the wolf is fine. He, so wait, he can't talk Some to the wolves? He can talk to the wolf. Okay. I... <laughs> Sorry, man. Have my players been talking to you? I'm really... Which is, which is where I'm going with this, because another player had the one unique thing. Uh, another PC had the one unique thing. I was the subject of experiments by servants of the Archmage. And had a conflicted, and she had a conflicted relationship with the Archmage. That gives me a campaign-spanning villain lurking in the background right. that every once in a while will show up. They'll meet an NPC who then turns out to secretly be a member of this evil conspiracy, trying to kidnap their sorceress and take her back to the lab for testing. Where she'll um, have to talk with dogs. <laughs> um, if there are any, you no. want to <laughs> but no. So I mean, so I mean, so my 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 players are there to have a fun adventure where they fight villains and strive against evil and and overcome uh, challenges. And so this gives me an opportunity to introduce challenges over the yeah. course of the campaign that are directly relevant to this person's one unique thing. And right. so even so that's a way of not having them hog the spotlight, but it does sort of make them here's the object you have to protect in addition to being yeah. the member of the party who's fighting alongside you because all these guys are coming from all directions and their intent is to knock out the sorceress and grab her. Every one unique thing is a player and many backgrounds are players telling you what they hope a campaign is about. Mm-hmm. When someone says something like I talk with dogs, or um, I'm the only elf in the world with round human ears. Sometimes what they're telling you is, I don't want to be the center of attention. Mm-hmm. I, I would rather enjoy what everybody else is doing. And so, in that case, later on, you know, if something cute comes out of the story where it's like, actually, it matters to talk to a dog right now, mm-hmm. that's nice. But they're sort of saying they don't want it, right? I think, mm-hmm. in your character's place. I think, but now yeah. that I've wrapped up the Archmage uh, arc, maybe I'll start doing something with dogs. Dog conspiracy. Yeah. Uh, well, I suggested, at the very beginning, I suggested that maybe could the reason that you talk to dogs be that you have some werewolf blood in your lineage? And he's like, yeah, maybe. So, oh, yeah. I don't know, maybe. maybe sort of for- forgotten now? Kind of forgotten. So yeah. maybe yeah. that'll start coming up. That's good. <laughs> There's also Shades of Fae, the new 13th Age Monthly has. Oh. I mean, I tend to... Have- Avoid dog mechanics because there's a dirty little secret about D&D books, which is if you look at D&D books and you take a big red marker and slash every page that has dog monsters on it in third edition or fourth edition, you look at something and go, wait, that is a dog monster. Another one. Oh, that's kind of a dog monster. This is everywhere, everywhere. Dungeons and dogs. Dungeons and dogs. <laughs> and when I did D&D miniatures, I mean... I don't even know the weight of dog miniatures we made, you know, if you took one of each of them. And so I, for the first bestiary for 13th Age, the very first monsters turned in were dogs. And, wow. I, I, you know, it's people like, I'm going to do a sample for you. Dogs. You know, it's like <laughs> elf dogs, whatever, you know. And so, and, and so I said, no dogs. None. But... In the latest Shades of Fae, look, there's elfin hounds. I didn't realize the spectral hound is the first dog monster. In I don't 13th think age. it is. Because no, of, there's another one. You think I could stop Ash? 
No, no, nothing. Okay, okay. I There's tons of dog monsters. Oh, so okay. The point is, I, I, I must not be using I them for the same up, reason. <laughs> I loosened up after the bestiary because, okay. like, what are you going to do? You, you can't do anything. But, but, but what I'm saying to you is, yes, there is, there is, like, the bar guest is actually described as hound-like. I mean, everything, okay. everything is a dog if you sort of squint at it a little bit. And I think your character. <laughs> That character can talk to a whole lot of monsters that they didn't expect to talk with. All right. So hopefully your players don't listen to this. I mean, <laughs> I mean, there's look, the, look. You even go to the demons or the devils, the canalith. It's a fucking dog. I'm sorry for my language. It's a dog. It has the word canine in it, and with a list. Hellhounds. Hello, hellhound. I mean, your friend, your this player character, like, you know, they need to be, like, they said, it's dog of the week, right? (laughs) So. This is is my note to myself for my campaign. (laughs) And if you want some miniatures, I have a few. All right. Well, we are uh, almost at time. We have we about are? five minutes left. Oh, wow. I know, right? Time flies when you're talking about icons. Um, anything else that's come up um, while we're talking or just in the course of uh, running games? I saw Michael's hand move just a tiny little bit. I think there's a question. Our videographer has a question. <laughs> um, I guess uh, we came up uh, recently with the uh, campaign coin Kickstarter. Um, and so the 13th Age is kind of like really freeform, and you kind of gloss over all the little itty gritty details. Uh, how do you handle gold? Keeping, do you keep track of gold in the uh. Or how do you, how much do you care? Or how do you well, care? you know how much I care. Let <laughs> 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 like them the seven gold at the beginning of the, in the book, and it's like, okay, what do you? And oh then my god! Or I, we could have said a starting gold or a small token. Starting packs. Tokens. Players have enough resources I, to make narrative sense. The weird part about it is, here's what I feel really <laughs> feel about money. The way I really feel about money in gold is that it's it's an understandable, wonderful story push that clearly characters and people should want some gold. And when coins are really interesting, I love them. Like a coin zombie. Huzzah! Uh, um, when a coin is a leftover from the seventh age... Yeah, but it's clearly, I mean, there's a weakness. Okay, Jonathan and I don't care. We, 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 we don't like shopping list games. Like, we, you know, Jonathan made third edition, and, and then I led fourth, and uh, both of those games really allow you to buy magic items and things to some extent. Well, this one doesn't. And so that we don't, so we don't, we don't care that much. Now, it's really funny because Ash really cares. And I know, you know, hi, Ash, um, that he and I are involved in a constant tussle in which every book he creates will have a sidebar economic system. And I'll be like, what the hell? Slash. <laughs> Slash. <laughs> That's dead again, you know. And Ash is like, Rob, we need one. My players need to have something to do with gold. And now the funny part about it is, I I guess he's right. I mean, I think he's right. I you know, I just am not happy with any of the systems yet. So there's this, and I don't really want to graft it on. So Aaron, what you got? Well, it's one of those things I've talked with Ash about it as well, where he he feels and and to, to he, and some, he's representing a a view of other people. Yes, and, and yeah. um, he has. I think he has a good point in terms of organized play. Yeah. 
you you kind of need something sometimes up front to get players involved and invested. And traditionally in these types of games, it's all right, you're going to get paid. But the problem with that is in 13th Age is, all right, you've got paid. What are you going to do with it? I mean, because... Well, you don't like the rune system and oils. You don't... Oh, forget it. Yeah, so, yeah. So, I, I tend to agree. I don't worry about money a lot in my games. I do in the current game that I'm doing, the the one that's in Eberron, mm-hmm. because it feels it feels, right it feels a little more granular in that, in that particular setting. But for the Dragon Empire, yeah. and for, for some other settings as well, it just doesn't feel really right to, to go down... And have the you know the comprehensive shopping the the tracking your gold down to the last copper, um, so basically what I the, I tend to do is go, what are you trying to buy? Is it really high quality? Um, you've got enough money for it basically, or you don't have enough money for it. What are you going to do to earn that money um, that we can just resolve really quickly? Or is yeah. it something you have to go on an adventure for? But I keep it uh, relatively on the abstract, kind of like a you have a resource. This costs this this resource, and you can buy anything less you, than that. Do you do it like? Do you have a low resource, medium resource, high resource? Yeah, I tend to mentally categorize it in, in that respect, so that if you have medium resources, you can buy anything at me at low resources, and your resources aren't. It, it's something. Yeah. Uh, White Wolf did something similar where you can buy anything of that level or below, mm. and you're fine. You don't have to worry about that. The, the, the expenditure in the um, general. Um, in the general White Wolf system used for all the, the storyteller games? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. I, um... So, so here's what I do, and then here's something I'd like to do, but I don't know how. Um, and I apologize if I said this last year, but if I did, then I still haven't figured it out adequately. Um, what, I, what I would do was, after a while, when they seem to have I, amassed a, a significant amount of wealth... Uh, is just, okay, tell me what one cool thing you do with that. Like, what do you spend that money on? And it's like, oh, well, I get a fancy new suit of armor, you know, or I buy a little house in the, you know, in the more, you know, not the slums, but the somewhat, you know, higher up than the slums part of town. Um, You know, something like that. I I get a horse. Um, Something like that. And then, um, very recently, uh, the players said, you know, I wish way back when one of us had rolled up a cleric because we're just, you know, Wade is always just tearing through us with these monsters and uh, and, and it's really kind of desperate. And, and somebody said hire? somebody said, can we get a hireling? I said, yes, you could. You could have you could have a cleric and I like just conjured up like, you know, five random clerics said, here are the available clerics who will follow you around and heal you when you need them. Um, if you donate 100 gold pieces per adventure, uh, per Per expedition to their church, and they picked the cranky, uh, complaining, pessimistic dwarf cleric, and like, and everywhere they go. So like, they'll be in the middle of a fight. Four choices were worse. Yeah, I mean, there was sort of there was sort of the the skipping happy elf cleric, and like, no, no, no. So it was the best of it was the best of it. Yeah, I believe there was an evil cultist, and so yeah, they picked the best of a bad lot, and so they'll be in battle, and and then this little voice will pipe up and say. 
you want healing or what? You know, it's like this thick Russian accent. Like, you will die eventually, but I heal you now, okay? And they're like, oh, you know, they even went to another, like, parallel universe. It was like, you want healing? It's like, he's here? Like, yeah. <laughs> you paid him. He follows you everywhere. So, and you don't, and you don't once he's bought, he stays bought. They don't have to protect him. They don't have to protect him. He's like a familiar, basically. Yeah. Um, he's just He's just kind of there. Or a pet, and you don't add to the. Uh, He's a resource, and you don't add Please to the encounter level. Like, I do not add to the encounter level. He doesn't fight. You, you're wait, not paying him to fight. Wait, your, your players aren't watching. You can tell the truth. I what? <laughs> no, listen. My encounters are absolutely fair and balanced, and if they just seem difficult, it's just because I want them to have an entertaining time and not just be bored by these fights. All right. So yeah, so that's what they do. What I would like to emulate is the kind of Fafford and Grey Mouser or Conan sort of scenario where mm. the heroes are down to their last two coppers and they're desperate and they're looking for an adventure. And I really don't need that motivation, but I sort of wish that I could somehow, without oh. tracking gold, have poverty, have oh. being broke a thing. That reminds oh. me of uh, the Conan yeah. the Barbarian system where they have, basically you have a mandatory spending of wealth between adventures. That, the the that, browsing, yeah. Oh, which, yeah? Which, which game? Is it the new one? Or yeah, the Modiphius one. The Modiphius one. The Modiphius one. Yeah. Yeah, right. Yeah, you, you have to spend your money between and, and adventures Dungeon, on... Uh, Dungeon World has something like that, like an yeah. end-game move for you. you craft does it as well. Well, Ma- Ma- gives you the option to spend money on partying, and if you don't, I think your social standing goes down or something. They, they have something like that. Neil, did you have a question? Yeah, um, combat. Do you guys use a grid or nothing? Um, we figured out how to not use a grid, um, but just, we still, we usually use miniatures, and what happens is you're either three ranges. Um, far away means I can't move and attack you, but I could hit you with a bow or some spells. Um, nearby means I can move once and attack. Uh, engaged means in order to get away from you without... Uh, I, I can just try to disengage, 50% chance usually, uh, but we're stuck in combat together until somebody moves away. Um, and, and the result is that there's movement. People are always jockeying around and moving, and, oh, my God, he's getting away. You know, and, but, and you can also, there's intercept rules so that if... So if an, if a month, if an enemy tries to come at somebody and there's a hero who is unengaged in the way, they can step forward and take the attack instead. Gotcha. And so you do use positioning. You use relative positioning, but yeah. not, it's not absolute positioning. Agreed, yeah. Yeah, yeah, the minis are just where is everybody and who's fighting who. Yeah, it's relational, that sort of and thing. And so. I have done, I mean, uh, as a GM, bad thing. Oh, so dumb. <laughs> so, so dumb. I don't know what I was thinking. Because if I, if I show weakness, my players just, you know, go after me. And I, and I showed horrible weakness because I've run the game for them for years, and it's always been very consistent. Like, this is nearby, that's far away, they can all do it. And at some game, I looked at what the thing, and I'm like, you know, I really want this to be a much bigger space, you know. And I could do that by lots of ways. But I'm just going to tell everybody, no, it's like you're only going to move a third about as, you know, so... You know, and then you know, and the player goes, like, "Oh, so I take up third, you know, forty feet with my miniature, you know, and all that stuff." I wish I'd never done that. So, once once you've established sort of the feel of your game, and of course, if you have Dungeons and Dragons maps, you know, or 
terrain tiles done by various people or terrain from Fantasy Forge, you've kind of got a feel anyway and, and use that. We have a way of a whiteboard where you just pull the table yeah. and draw. Yeah, and that's, that's perfect. That's all you need. Have you seen the uh, note board? At the at the Pilgrim Press booth, it is a portable, lightweight folding whiteboard. One side is blank; the other side has hexes and squares. Oh, that's oh, that's so it cool. is like a it's GM must really have. Useful. Really yeah. My yeah. Oh no! I think it's twelve dollars. I think. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's incredibly reasonable. A mere twelve dollars. Yeah. It's and, great. And, and in a way, it's the way it's set up. You can also cut it if you uh, don't need the whole thing all at once. Yeah. Oh, you can cut it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't. Yeah. Last question: Where can I get thirteenth age here? <laughs> Why you can buy Thirteenth Age at the Pelgrane Press booth, four nineteen, right across from Dungeon Crawl Classics and adjacent to Paizo and Chaosium. Okay. Yeah. I'll see you there. We'll see you there. <laughs> um. Quick, coming back, I the carousing thing, the oh, yeah. like the partying thing, all that. Um. There's an upcoming issue of Thirteenth uh, Age Monthly, the weekly, the monthly subscription we're running, and it's by Gareth, and it's called Alarms and Incursions, which I think is a great. And it's what happens off screen between adventures, and but but it would be really fun in in a game where you really want to take. Go ahead in every every session. So what happened to your money from last time? A, you know. Oh, that could be fun. Yeah. yeah. Who that, robbed you this week? Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. You know. Because yeah. if you're doing preferred in the Ray Mauser, that's kind of what happened. You know, we yeah, spent it. Spend we spent it incredibly well. You know, or <laughs> we're incredibly poor. It, right. Yeah. It yeah. seemed yeah. like a great idea at the time, <laughs> but right. now we're broke again. Yes. Uh, or our ship fun. sank with all the gold in it. In, yeah. uh, in one of the games I'm playing in, uh, one of the players, um, it's not with their one unique thing, though it really should be. When when I started the campaign, I was jamming it. And I just... It, it, he started off that he's saying, oh, I owe this guy money. And I rolled with it. And so all of a sudden he was owing everybody money. And so so it's like this guy here, you just met at a bar. He's like, wait a minute, I know you. You owe me money. <laughs> Squirrel on the island in the middle of nowhere that he's talking to. Wait a minute, I think I know you, don't I? You know, skinned human who's magically still alive and up on someone's mall, uh, wall. Yeah, he owes him money too. So... <laughs> You know, in that case, it's like, yeah, you got you got a lot of debts to pay, man. <laughs> I like it. That's yes. very. That's a. That's and we a never, never never found out why. How? Yeah, exactly. He owes the money, but but everybody seems to know who he is, and that they owe him. That that he owes the money. Does the debt he owes to the flayed man on the wall go to the person who flayed? <laughs> no, that's a separate debt. He also <laughs> he also owes that guy money. <laughs> All right, so we are at time. Uh, thank you, uh, all, all four of you who showed up. This is a lot of fun, and uh, we hope that this was useful to you. Cool. All right, thanks a lot. Have a great show. Yeah.